Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day in the capital is Alpena Malde. Alpena is the CEO at St Luke's Hospice Harrow and Brent, a local hospice for the London boroughs of Harrow and Brent. Um, Alpena, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you, Scott. I really welcome the opportunity. It's such a pleasure for us as well to welcome you onto the um, airwaves, especially considering uh, the work that you're doing. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time. But for you and your operations at St. Luke's, just how has it affected you? So COVID-19, as we know, it has caused extraordinary demand across the entire health and social care system. But here at St. Luke's, we care for patients who are most at risk and vulnerable from the virus because we look after people who are in the last phase of life mm. uh, and has been well publicized. They are therefore quite fragile and need more support. The other thing is um, when, the, the, when the pandemic first hit, our location put us at the epicenter of the pandemic. We cover one of the most densely populated areas of any hospice in the UK, and we support an ageing population of over 450,000. According to Public Health England, Brent was the worst affected borough within London from COVID-19, and Harrow was in the top eight. That meant that our local hospitals were utterly overwhelmed, and Northwick Park Hospital was the first to declare a critical incident. Also, Harrow and Brent Health and Wellbeing Strategy Boards report our community as having one of the highest older people populations in London, and with many suffering from diabetes and cardiovascular problems, which is a particularly high-risk COVID-19 group. Um, and all of these, and some of these people will have also been at the in the last phase of their lives. So, um, essentially, we were like rabbits in headlights when this first hit us because. We had never experienced anything like it, but I'm really proud of the way in which we responded. Um, and would you like me to talk about some of the adjustments that we made to our service? Yes, of course. Do feel free. Okay. So we did everything that we could to continue to do what we're great at and also to support and ease the burden on the NHS. We saw that very clearly as something that we needed to do. So we put in a number of changes to our services and adapted. Um, we have a 12-bedded inpatient unit here. So we adapted our service so that we could increase our occupancy rates and offer longer lengths of stay. Um, and in order to facilitate rapid, rapid hospital discharge for patients so that NHS beds could be freed up. We started accepting emergency admissions up to 11 p.m. every day to respond to the demand for these beds. and. We made sure that there were as many beds available for patients once discharged whilst they were awaiting uh, transfer to a care home. 
We also continued with physiotherapy services to support mobility and to relieve symptoms of these patients who were coming from hospital. Unfortunately, we had to limit the number of visitors to one relative only, um, which was a very good thing for families. But what we did is, because we realized this was really having an emotional impact on people, we introduced a farewell visit, essentially when someone Mm. had passed on. We removed the limits and numbers and we enabled people to say goodbye safely, which has meant a lot to so many people. Mm. We also support patients in their own homes and we increased our capacity greatly not only providing the specialist care for over 600 people approaching the end of life in their own homes, but also we supported rapid discharge from hospital to home for people with or without COVID-19, again, freeing up hospital beds. We have a service called our single point of access service, and we reported a, a huge increase in rapid response visits. So someone in distress at home would call our telephone helpline and we would go out if nobody else could. Um, And we provided care within 24 hours of being requested and we went in up to four times a day. The focus was, let's not put burden on hospitals. We also have something called our fast track service, which meets the need to transfer and discharge patients from hospital. And we worked really closely with the local NHS to establish rapid response packages of care up to five days. Our community doctors started performing procedures in people's homes, which would previously only have been carried out here in the inpatient unit or in the hospital setting. These procedures, for example, inserting the brains, it will relieve a patient's pain and symptoms while keeping them out of hospitals. We established a new out-of-hours consultant advice and guidance service, and this really had a positive impact on patient care. Video telephone consultations meant that we we were able to respond far quicker to patient concerns. Uh, We've had feedback with a group of six patients initially, um, and it's been really good, um, and they've said that they really appreciated that support that they had at the other end of the phone or, or by video. Um, we To support carers at home, we developed um, videos to support these people looking after patients in their own homes. And these included advice about how to move patients, the nutrition, how to cope with breathlessness, sickness, alleviating things like thirsty dry mouth symptoms and dealing with agitation. Um, and we also provided advice on self-care to these carers. Um, Our clinical teams are always on hand to provide emotional support to families and carers, and we continue to provide counselling remotely. Um, And I think, in a nutshell, that's how we adapted during the crisis, so that we were doing everything we can to relieve burden on the NHS and to support as many people as we could in the communities that we are here to serve. Sounds like you've been doing some incredible work over the uh, the last few months um, to sort of adapt to this and keep those vital services uh, going forward. And it has, of course, come at a huge impact to with the um, the working practices um, behind the scenes uh, by the sounds of it, Alpena, and uh, prompted some real changes. Um, I can also imagine that just given your status as a charitable concern that the pandemic has certainly had an impact on fundraising activities as well. And is this something that you can see yourselves having to grapple with for some time in the future, just because even when COVID-19 is no longer an issue and there is a working vaccine in place, there may be some real anxiety about 
coming out to events where there are a lot of people gathering together and a lot of fundraising activities do tend to take that form, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. Um, so we had to cancel all our mass participation events. Um, we have three key events during the year where we have people in excess of 500 people gathering and we've had to clearly um, not do those. Mm. Those net out about £400,000 a year, which is 10% of the costs of providing our care. So you, as you can see, that had a significant impact. So yes, fundraising income I see as being severely impacted in future, particularly because we don't know what the economic impact of the pandemic is going to be. Um, we've got the furlough scheme at the moment. There's some job security. But when all of that changes, if there's no further significant government support, people may have less money to give to charities. And, and actually, like anybody else, I think the only certainty is that there will be uncertainty in the future. Um, we have 18 charity shops that generate a significant in income to support the work of the hospice. We had to lock those down. Uh, during lockdown, we had to close those um, from the 24th of March till the 15th of June. Uh, and of course, we couldn't just open them on the 15th of June straight away. So we've had a quarter where our, where our retail income has dropped off. And actually, since we reopened, we've seen a significant reduction in footfall because we've had to introduce social distancing restrictions in our shops and an increased cost of the PPE that we have to provide staff and also to shoppers uh, in our shops. Um, so yes, it's a double whammy at the moment. I think the government, um, you know, I, I can't be negative about what the government did during the crisis. They put in a number of mitigating factors, which I think for the current financial year will mean that we will not see um, a reduction in our charitable reserves. Um, you know, things like the, the temporary laying off of shop staff that we were able to do under the furlough scheme, applying for business rates relief, freezing all new, we did, we did some internal things like freezing all new staff appointments, um, and we significantly tightened controls um, around expenditure. So I think this year is fine, but I don't know what the long-term impact of this pandemic is going to be, particularly if there is not a vaccine. So we see a situation next year where our shops will not be generating a profit um, if the current situation continues, and if particularly if there's a second wave, because that will make people fearful to come out and shop, uh, and that's going to have an impact um, on us, clearly. Uh, we are not planning on any mass participation events next year. We've, we've recognized that actually we cannot rely on those in the current situation to to be uh, to be as successful as they have been in the past because of, as you described, the fears that people might have. Also, we are 40% funded by the NHS for the costs of our care, but that isn't changing. Um, so the government had some short-term support for hospices, and that, as I said, will help the current year. But without some long-term sustainability funding made available to us, I can see a situation where we may have to cut back on services, close some beds, if this is not addressed. Um, so I hold out every hope that, that the government has got this on their radar, uh, because if the hospice sector isn't there, the NHS 
will struggle if there is, particularly if there's a second wave of the pandemic. It's certainly going to be an uncertain time and let us really hope that the uh, the support for the industry is going to be there because it is vital. Mm. It is absolutely vital, as you say. Um, and just mm-hmm. from um, a leadership point of view, um, Alpana, one thing I am interested to uh, to know um, from your point of view is when mm. you're in a leadership role in your industry and you're faced with a challenge as monumentous as this, how mm. is it that you mentally sort of steel yourself to to combat these issues? Right. So, uh, as I said, um, you know, we were all rabbits in headlights when this first hit, and particularly when the when the critical state of Northwick Park Hospital became apparent. Um, but the one thing that you have to do is that you have to remember you are not alone. You have your team with you, um, and actually, we have we have a remarkably committed um, team who really want to make sure that the hospice is here um, in the future. So several things, actually. I think what what you have to recognize is you have to empower people. You have to remove bureaucracies in a situation like this. So we broke down hierarchies. Uh, we broke down silos. So everybody just pitched in and did whatever it took um, that we needed to get done. So I've done a couple of shifts in reception, for example, because there was no one there to greet visitors um, because I was in the building. Um, so everybody just pitched in. So I think you really have to have to make sure that everybody realizes that it's their role to make sure that the hospice continued on a day-to-day basis doing whatever it took so that people who needed our care got it. Um, And, you know, there's a variety of things that go on behind the scenes. So um, there's people who come in to donate money, greeting them, making sure that, you know, they appreciated, they they felt appreciated. Um, There's the fact that you had to make sure that the kitchens were kept open and soft so that people were fed. Um, We had to, there's a variety of things that that go on behind the scenes. And we had furloughed a number of people because of financial pressures. So we could not have worked in the way we worked before. Um, So that's what we said, all hands to deck, including it starts at the top. And so I think a servant leader attitude was very critical um, during the pandemic. And just thinking about the future of the hospice mm-hmm. sector now, before we do wrap things up on the programme, as you've said, um, it's going to need an awful amount of support over the uh, the next uh, few months. But what mm-hmm. can you see um, happening with the industry? What direction do you see yourselves going in over the next year? And uh, what are you really hoping to achieve by this time in 12 months? So, to be honest, um, we are looking at this uh, with three strategies. What if we had to shrink? Um, how could we how could we shrink causing the minimal impact to people who need our care? Um, how do we maintain what we're doing? Um, and that is about how do we how do we um, how do we put the ask out to people to say, look, we need to be here to support the community and we rely, rely on your generosity. How do we influence NHS leaders in our, in our locality to see the importance of hospice services? Um, and then, of course, there's a growth strategy. So we have, we have ambitions like everyone else. We want to establish education so that um, social care staff, staff in care homes, for example, are better enabled to look after people at the end of life. Because we can't do everything for everyone. So if we can influence better care, that is one of our key objectives in the future. So we want to grow our education program. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we can ride the storm, 
we will put in place measures so that in 2022, for example, we have started offering that. Uh, we also want to develop more non-specialized pathways, recognizing that the pathway to dying is changing. People are living longer with more conditions. So we want to develop more upstream models of care, uh, which means we're reaching people earlier in their last phase of life and helping them to live well um, so that they have a better experience in that last phase of life. So that is something that we would like to focus on as well in future. Um, we we have a lot of ambitions, but those are the two key ones um, um, that I would like to point out. And it's fantastic that you are so ambitious, even amid all of the uncertainty. And I do wish you all the luck in the world, Alpina, in making some of those visions a reality. And I genuinely do think it would be wonderful just given how enlightening it's being welcoming you onto the program today to catch up at some point in the next year when hopefully there'll be some positive news to share about developments then thank you thank you scott and as i said um you know we are one hospice uh, but hospices up and down the country are probably in a very similar situation Mm. They are absolutely, and it's imperative that they get the support they need during this time. It's been such a pleasure, Alpina, welcoming you onto the programme to hear your views today. And most importantly, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And that goes out to all of the St. Luke's staff, as well as everybody within the hospice's care. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. And you stay safe too. I look forward to Mm. speaking with you again. Thank you. Likewise, and I would reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Do please be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Alpena Malde on to today's programme, CEO at St Luke's Hospice, Harrow and Brent. Um, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spends a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable concerns. That interview is coming up shortly. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London. And to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing, 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans I know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it I mean I think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.